Uh, it's one of my great joys as minister here at St George North that uh, you guys care about doctrine. You, you care about what you believe. Uh, and so if I, I think if I asked anyone who was a member of St George North, uh, what does Jesus' death achieve? You could explain to me how he died for our sins, how he died to take the punishment we deserve. If I asked you, tell me about the Bible... You tell me it's the Word of God, it's breathed out by God, and every word is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. You care about those things. It's also one of my great joys that if I said to most of you, are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, or amillennial, you would probably look at me blankly uh, or say, no, I think I'm Gen Y or Gen Z. Or uh, It's my great joy that most people do not care very much about that question. This is one area of theology that I'm glad our church doesn't care about. And if you still don't know what I'm talking about, I say praise God for you. Because uh, let me tell you, that is not the case in many parts of the world and in many denominations, in many parts of the world and many types of churches. This idea of a millennium, a 1,000-year reign of Christ, uh, and whether it happens before Jesus returns, after Jesus' return, or is happening now, that question actually divides Christians and people leave churches over it and start new churches over it, which is incredibly sad uh, when you think that it only comes up one time in the Bible, here in Revelation chapter 20, in a part of the Bible that's incredibly symbolic and we've got to approach with some humility. Now I'm going to explain today what I think about the millennium as we uh, look at Revelation chapter 20 today, uh, but I want to stress that people who have a different view on this, uh, within reason of course, uh, that's okay. Uh, unlike things like Jesus dying for our sins, or that the Bible is the Word of God, or that Jesus has risen from the dead, unlike things like that, this is one of those, it's okay to have a different view on things, topics. So let's pray, uh, and then we're going to look at this Praise God, not that controversial for us, but controversial for other people passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that Scripture is so clear on what we need to know to find salvation in Christ and how to live in the light of that salvation. We thank you that it sets out those truths so wonderfully for us. But sometimes, Father, your word is difficult to understand. Uh, and so as we look at this passage that sometimes causes controversy, we pray that you'll help us to understand it, but also to work out uh, what it means for us to live as disciples of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we come to chapter 20, we've got to finish off chapter 19. So last week, we got up to chapter 19, verse 10. And you remember the last part of last week's passage we looked at was the marriage of the Lamb. And so it was a picture of how once and for all, Jesus will return uh, and he will come together with us, his people, uh, he is the lamb because he is the one who died for our sins. We are the bride because we are the ones who have been washed clean, who have been kept for him. We are his bride, the church. But there was one last thing that needed to happen that we didn't get to last week, which is what happens to the beast and what happens to the dragon who we've been reading about over and over again in Revelation. What happens to the forces in the world that are opposed to God, the forces in the world that persecute God's people, the church, and then what happens to the one who stands behind it all, which is the devil, the dragon. So the first thing we're going to see in chapter 19 is about the death of the beast, and this is verses 11 to 21 of chapter 19. So turn there with me now. Now all through Revelation, the most common picture of Jesus uh, in fact, it's so common that it's just over and over and over again has been as the lamb. So over and over again, it says, the lamb who was slaughtered for your sins, the lamb 
who was slaughtered for your sins. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who comforts us. All those things. But on that last day, Jesus will not look like a lamb. Look with me at verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. And that, that image, you know, of the rider on a white horse, that is in just so many books and so many movies, isn't it? It's, it the great king always, if he's the good guy, he always rides a white horse. He rides into battle to bring the victory, whether it's King Arthur or whether it's, you know, John Wayne in a Western or whether it's Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings, they all ride a white horse. But none of those fictional heroes can compare to this. This is Jesus coming, if you look down a bit further, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The point is there is is no one who compares to him, no one who can stand against him. He is coming to defeat all his enemies. And we're only looking quickly at chapter 19, but uh, it sets it up as if there's going to be a great battle. So it really builds it up. We'll jump down to verse 19. It says, then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. So remember the beast is, is evil governments and, and false religion and everything that opposes Jesus and the gospel. And it's like there is going to be this great and awful battle. That's how it's set up. Who's going to win? Will it be Jesus or will the world prevail? But then it is like the worst anticlimax in history because there is no battle. Jesus just rides through. And the beast, well, if he wasn't the personification of all evil, you'd sort of feel sorry for him. Look down at verse 20. It says, but the beast was taken prisoner and along with him the false prophet. And then both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There is not a battle to come. Uh, So many Christians who get caught up in the book of Revelation think, oh, there's going to be this great battle. It's going to be awful in the end of time. They talk about Armageddon and all this. Yes, the powers of the world who are against God and the gospel. Yes, they think they can fight against Jesus, but when Jesus returns, it will not be a battle. It's a rout. It will just be a a mopping up exercise. And why is that? What's the point we've seen over and over and over again in Revelation? It's because the battle was won 2,000 years ago when Jesus came the first time. Jesus defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the devil in his death and resurrection. Jesus has already won the victory. This is just the, the victory parade. And there are little hints of that all through this chapter. Just look at verse 13. See there it says, he wore a robe stained with blood. That's not their blood. There hasn't been a fight yet. That is his blood that's talking about. His robe is marked by his blood because that is where the victory was won. When he died for our sins, when he died on the cross. And what's his weapon? Look at verse 15. It says, a sharp sword came from his mouth. And that image just comes up over and over again. We've seen it in Revelation, but you see it in other parts of the Bible as well. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see it's talking about the Word of God. That's the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. That is his weapon, declaring the truth of the gospel, saying, I have died for the sins of the world. I am the Lord of Lords. I have risen from the dead. I've defeated death. This is so important to understand. It's not like the future of the world is in doubt. There is no doubt. Yes, evil happens now. Yes, people opposed to God seem to succeed often now. While often faithful people often are persecuted and seem to miss out now, but the end of the story is already written. And we need to remember that now. If you are ever tempted to give up on following Jesus now, you need to remember that would be like 
stopping supporting the only team that's in the grand final to support a team that's not even in the competition. That's how silly it would be. And what are the weapons we need to persevere and to keep following Jesus now? It's the same weapon that Jesus uses. It's the sword of his word. If you are struggling, if you are thinking of giving up, if you think it's all too hard to follow Jesus, what do you need to do? You need to pick up his sword and read it. You need to remind yourself again and again of the wonderful truth of God's word, of who Jesus is, of what he has done for you. And as we talk to others, what do we need? You don't need clever arguments. You don't need great intellect. You just share God's word with people. Because God's word is better than any of your clever arguments. God's word is the sword that will pierce people's hearts and show them why they need the Lord Jesus. I keep coming back to this week in and week out and I hope in two years time when someone says to you, what's the message of Revelation? You'll be able to say it. What is the message? Jesus wins. So keep following Jesus. That's the message. Well, that's the death of the beast. That's how Jesus will put an end to all human opposition when he returns and bring in his kingdom. But of course, we know, and we've seen this clearly all through Revelation, behind any human opposition to Jesus, there is spiritual opposition. There is a spiritual general behind it all. The devil is at work, which brings us to chapter 20. And for those who've been enjoying my obscure movie illusions in this series, I've called this section Exit the Dragon, for those who liked Bruce Lee in the late 70s and early 80s. So come with me to verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now this is where this whole question of the millennium or the thousand years comes up. When is this thousand year period when Satan is bound? And then in later verses there, a thousand years where Christ rules along with his people. Uh, so when is this? Do remember though, a thousand in Revelation doesn't mean literally a thousand. We've seen it over and over again, it means a long time. So it doesn't have to be exactly a thousand years. Now I'm sorry if this part is a bit like a lecture, but I want you to understand the three common views on this so you don't get confused. And so when you listen to other people talk on Revelation, you'll know where they're coming from if uh, they hold a different view. So the first view on this is called premillennialism. And if you can't see the screen, it's also printed on your outline. All right. There's actually all sorts of different variations on premillennialism. Uh, and they generally all come from America, okay? So if you listen to American preachers, often they will use this sort of language, okay? So broadly this view says Jesus will return pre, that is before the millennium, okay? So the millennium is then after Jesus returns. And so the idea is Jesus will come and he will raise Christians to life, and this is where all these ideas of a rapture and all that sort of thing, if you, know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, but if you do, this is where they all come from. Uh, and so Jesus will raise Christians to life, that's the first resurrection, and he will bind Satan, and there will be this wonderful kingdom on earth, not, not heaven yet, not the new creation yet, but a, a great kingdom on earth, uh, or at least, you know, for a long time or for a thousand years, but then Satan will be released for one great final battle, when you'll finally be destroyed and then 
Jesus will bring the final judgment day and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, as I say, there are loads of variations on this view, mainly amongst American Christians that I won't go into, but it's often tied to establishing Israel on earth because the kingdom must be in Jerusalem, it must be in Israel. And so that's why you'll often hear American Christians, it just sounds so weird to us, who who want to give money to to establish a Jewish state in Israel. They're people who hold a variation of this view. Uh, and as I say, this is where the big fa- focus on the rapture, where Christians are removed from earth. If you've read those books or seen those movies, Left Behind, uh, that's, they're all based on this sort of a view. My problem with it is, it just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the rest of the New Testament seems to make it pretty clear, when Jesus returns, that will be it. It won't have multiple stages like this view suggests. Uh, the judgment day will be it then and there that's when Jesus will bring in the new creation the new heavens and the new earth there's no in-between time like this the next way people understand this is called post-millennialism and this view says that Jesus will return post or after the thousand year reign so Christians under this idea the Christians will over time actually establish the kingdom of God here on earth Uh, As we preach the gospel, as we improve the world, as we share Jesus with all the nations, people will become Christians and the world will become more Christianized. Things will get better and better and then Jesus will return. So that's the idea there, that at some point we'll enter this sort of golden age where it will seem like Jesus is ruling on earth. Now again, my problem with that view is it just doesn't seem to make sense of the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the book of Revelation, which seems to say the world will get worse, not better, before Jesus returns. And interestingly, after the First and Second World Wars, it was amazing how this view just sort of died out. Because people said, hang on, the world's not getting better when we're dropping nuclear bombs on one another. And so it, just, it was just, people didn't hold this view anymore. There's very few people who would call themselves a post-millennialist now. Which brings me to the view I hold, uh, which is called amillennialism. And this is uh, basically the view most Christians throughout history have held, uh, and the view that the reformers like Calvin and Luther and those sort of guys held. And I'm going to look at the passage in this way. But basically this view says, now is the millennium. Now is the, this thousand year period, we're living in it, the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, because Christ is ruling now in the heavens and when we die we get to go to rule with Christ in the heavens and so Jesus can return at any time. Uh, just like the rest of the New Testament seems to make clear, you know how Jesus says, I'll come like a thief in the night uh, or Paul tells us we don't know the day or hour. So that's the three views, I'll put them together there, but you've got them on your outline. Uh, But I'm going to be looking at it from that view, that third perspective, if you like. So let's now look through the chapter. So come with me, the first section is in verses 1 to 3, and it's about how Satan is bound. Now we read verses 1 to 3 before, so I won't read them again. Uh, Now people say, in what sense is Satan bound now? So a premillennialist would say to me, but hang on, for the last few weeks you've been telling people that Satan's persecuting the church. He seems, that doesn't seem very bound. But do you notice it's a very specific binding here. Look at verse 3. It says he's bound so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. See, before Jesus came, only the Jews, and actually only a very small proportion of the Jews, knew God as their Lord. 
If you think about it, most of the Old Testament of Israel didn't trust God at all. It was only a very small proportion and only a tiny smattering of Gentiles, people from other nations like most of us, ever came to know God as their Lord. People like Ruth or, or Rahab, you can read about in your Old Testament, came and found God. What was the rest of the world doing? The rest of the world was deceived. The rest of the world was worshipping idols or, or worshipping themselves, worshipping things they made. The devil was the prince of this world. But once Jesus came, Satan was bound up. Jesus actually says this all through the Gospels. He talks about how I'm binding up the strong man so that we can plunder his house. Well, the strong man is the devil and we are the people in his house who Jesus is plundering. And so in Matthew 28, Jesus said, now, now that Satan is bound, now that he's not deceiving the world anymore, now go and make disciples of all nations. This gospel is not just to share with your little group of Jewish friends, it's to go to every person on earth. That didn't happen before. But now the door is open, the devil is bound, so Jesus says, get on with it. So for the last 2,000 years, this time we live in now, has been the millennium. That's it, we're all millennials. See, Satan has been bound, the gospel has just spread like, like no other movement in the history of the world. Secular historians can't explain the spread of the gospel. It's like nothing else that's ever happened because it didn't spread by threat. It didn't spread by coercion. It just spread by word of mouth. Yes, individual people still reject the gospel, but there is no impediment to them hearing it. There is no impediment to any person on this earth having the chance to know Jesus. And so the other thing that's happening in this period is that Jesus is ruling with his people now. So come with me to verses 4 to 6. It's quite a long section, so make sure you read along. It says, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the people who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, a person who holds a premillennial view, uh, they, would, they would say the first resurrection is still to come and it's when Christians will be raised from the dead to rule with Jesus on earth for a thousand years. And then they'd say other people are only raised later uh, for the judgment day when Christ returns once and for all. But as I say, that just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the New Testament. So what is the first resurrection then? Well, I think it's the new life you receive the moment you become a Christian. See, in Colossians chapter 3, we're told that if you have trusted in Christ, you have been raised with him. You're actually a citizen of heaven. You're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Yes, we look forward to the final resurrection when we're physically raised to live with Christ forever in a new creation. But your new life started the moment you put your trust in Jesus. And that's why when a Christian dies physically, we still live. That's why we can say that with confidence. Even though they have died, they still live in the heavens with Christ and that is especially wonderful for people who are being persecuted here in this life isn't it like these people are having what is it, it the way it describes them is awful these people who have been martyred beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus 
How wonderful is it to know that even though that awful thing is happening to them, they now rule with Christ in the heavens. When we die, we get to go to be with Christ. That's why Jesus could say to the man next to him on the cross, the man who became a Christian in the last minute of his life, he could say to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's why you can say at a Christian funeral, they have gone to be with the Lord and not just mean it as some sort of fake comfort, but mean it as truth. That's not the end of it. It's a wonderful thing to go to be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul could say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He could say that. But we look forward to something even better than that, to our physical resurrection when Jesus returns, because that's when we will live in a world with no sin and no pain and no suffering and no death. So Jesus is ruling now with Christians who've died in the faith. But before he returns, it says, there will be one final battle, but I've put it in inverted commas, with Satan. So look at verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. This seems to suggest that just before Jesus returns, things will look pretty dark. Satan will seem to be winning again. He'll seem to be deceiving the nations again. The church will not look powerful. The church will be withering and dying. Jesus will not be returning when it's easy to be a Christian. He'll come at a point when actually Satan seems to be winning again. Now, some people might say, are we in that time now? Or are we about to enter that time now? Or maybe we are, but I don't think this is here to make you worry about that. You're not meant to read Revelation and try and work out where are we? I wonder what moment we're in. We will know we are in that time when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, we'll say, oh wow, so that was what Revelation was talking about. See, the point here is no matter how bad it looks, Jesus is going to come and he is going to give Satan an absolute hiding. Now, I think this is the same battle as with the beasts in chapter 19. It shapes like it's going to be a fight. Look at verse 9. It says, they came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. But then what happens? There's no battle. Then the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. But again, it's not a fight, it's just a cakewalk. Because remember, Jesus has already won. And so then, the final picture, our last heading, the second life and the second death. At the end of time, every person will be raised from the dead. Every person who has ever lived and the great judgment day will happen. And this is not a new idea. It's not like Revelation 20 and you go, wow, this is a new idea. This is all through the Bible. It's in the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And it's described, what happens on that day is described like a great account keeping. So look at verse 12. It says, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And it seems what these are, are the books of our lives. Preachers today like to talk about it as a DVD or a video or whatever, but it's the book of your life. How have you lived your life? Have you lived your life for yourself or for the Lord? Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Have you loved your neighbour above yourself? And of course, if they were the only books, if that was the only book that got opened, no one would survive. Everyone would be thrown into the lake. No one would be a part of the new creation. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the book of Romans says. But look again at verse 12. It says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And this is ultimately the book that matters. I don't know if your name is written in any other book, but this is the book that matters. This is the book that lists out all of God's children. And from God's perspective, he has written our names in there from the beginning. He chose us before the beginning of time. From our perspective, it lists out all people who truly trust in Jesus, all the people who've taken a hold of the forgiveness and the salvation that only Christ offers. No one deserves to be in the book of life. Your name is not in the book of life because your book is so impressive. There is no one who, when their book is open, will go, yep, look at that one, I'm proud of that. That is not anyone's experience. We all deserve God's judgment, what's called either second death. But by God's grace, if you trust in Christ, you receive a forgiveness and a salvation that you do not deserve. Your name is written in the book. That is the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? And so the most important question at the end of Revelation 20 is not what view of the millennium do you hold? The great evangelist John Chapman used to say, I'm a pan-millennialist because it'll all pan out in the end. See, that's not the important question. I'll talk to you and argue about why you should be an amillennialist and what's wrong with the other views. But in the end, the question is not that. The question is, have you accepted the wonderful offer of God's forgiveness for your sin? That's the question. Have you put your faith in Jesus? When Jesus returns, will your name be found in the book of life on that day? If you are not certain of that, please come and talk to me about it today everything hangs on that decision and there may not be a tomorrow we don't know the day or hour when Christ will return you must make that decision it's the most important thing in the world but these verses say something else interesting too look with me again at verse 15 it says another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books now I don't think that's just non-believers it's Christians too. On the judgment day, our lives will be laid clear before the Lord. We will be judged according to our works. Now, how does that work? Given I've stressed over and over again that you are saved by grace. It's a free gift of God, not by works. It's by faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast. How then can I be judged according to my works? Well, it's because our works are the great evidence of our faith. As James says, a faith without works is dead. You're not saved by your works, but if a person's faith has no impact on their life, if a person just pays lip service to trusting in Jesus, that is not saving faith. Because if you know Jesus, it will flow out in how you live. It'll flow out in your commitment to his body to one another in the way you love one another and the way you care for these people around you here it'll flow out in the way you use your life for God's glory it's not perfection we will all sin until Christ returns but in our books will be the works that have flowed out of our faith the works that Ephesians 2 says God has prepared for you to do you see not works done to earn God's love but works done because you know the love of Christ and I for one would love the Lord Jesus to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, on that last day. 
See, in the end, these verses are meant to do two things for us. The first thing is they're meant to give us great assurance. That's the first thing. I want you to hear that. They're meant to give us wonderful assurance. If you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You have new life in Christ. If you trust in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life. You have nothing to fear from the second death, as it said. Know that assurance. But it is also meant to be a warning against spiritual laziness and presuming on God. Do not let yourself drift. Don't presume on Jesus. And in particular, do not drift away from trusting in Christ. Everything hangs on that. As someone who knows the wonder of what Jesus has done for you, devote yourself to him. Live your life for his glory. That's what Revelation 20 calls on you to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that sadly sometimes divides Christians, but we pray that it would never do that with us. Instead, we pray that we would hear its message, that we would know that wonderful assurance that comes from knowing that our names are written in the book of life, that all those who trust in Jesus have nothing to fear from the second death. But we pray also that we might hear that warning, that we would not presume on Jesus, that we would devote ourselves to the service of him and that we would see the changes in our life that flow out of our faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.